0: Welcome back to The Voice of the Child. Ten years ago, it was almost unheard of for British politicians to talk about child welfare openly, and we were even less likely to hear social workers challenging accepted wisdom in child protection practice. But as campaigners began to expose the often callous and biased processes inside the system, social workers who wanted to improve child protection and make it truly child and family focused gradually started to speak out. A new and groundbreaking organisation co-founded by Andy Bilson, an Emeritus Professor of Social Work at the University of Central Lancashire and a former chair of the Council of Europe and UNICEF's Child Rights Observatory, aims to place parents' advocacy at the forefront of child protection and to protect their rights and the rights of their children. Hi Andy, it's great to have you on the programme.
1: Hi, good to be here.
0: We're going to chat today about the Parent, Family and Allies Network, or PFAN, of which you're a co-founder and which I understand is the first organisation of its kind in the UK, actively challenging the status quo inside the child protection sector to try to protect children's and parents' rights, which the network says have been eroded by current protection practices. Now, PFAN says specifically on its website that the current system is oppressive, that it doesn't protect children and undermines parents, which is leading to the traumatic and permanent severance of parents and families from their children through adoption. This network, as we mentioned, is called the Parent, Family and Allies Network. So let's just start with who the allies are in this network, Andy.
1: I think the allies are people who uh, perhaps work within the system, and want to be bringing about change. It's about trying to develop a network where parents and uh, family members and uh, people uh, with an interest in this subject, even a very broad interest, can get together to start to uh, try to do things.
0: Do you have any idea at this point how many people are within the network and what kinds of backgrounds they have?
1: Um, I, I know how many, which is just over 100, uh, and uh, But as for their backgrounds, we haven't been collecting that sort of information. These are people who've uh, expressed an interest following a conference that we had that started uh, PFAN uh, in York a few months ago.
0: And, and what happened during that conference?
1: We had uh, a whole range of different people talking about the impact of uh, the child protection system and particularly adoption on them because it was during adoption week. And we had uh, parents who uh, had lost their children talking about uh, how the system had really failed them. Uh, It had failed them in as much as uh, they were left mourning with very little uh, support uh, and with no help to actually either prevent their child being taken into care or to prevent future children from coming into care.
0: And you say at PFAN that there are uh, practices which you've highlighted, which the network believes is leading to these traumatic removals. Can you give us some examples of those practices?
1: Well, I think the first thing is the huge increase in the numbers of investigations. Uh, uh, My my research shows that uh, uh, we're up to something like one in every eight children uh, being subject to an investigation before their fifth birthday. So, The child protection system has massively increased uh, how it impacts on people. Alongside that, you have a a system, an adversarial court system, which I think is made worse now during uh, the COVID lockdown because of the problems of dealing with uh, court cases uh, when people uh, are uh, uh, unable to to go to court and present themselves. So doing this over telephone calls and uh, Skype.
0: Have you seen anything during this period that's really concerned you?
1: Yes, I think uh, everybody's worried about the, the issue of, uh, of online court hearings. Uh, I, I was speaking to a parent who, uh, having had a caesarean uh, section, uh, was told to her for the first time that uh, uh, she'd lost, she was going to lose her child. Uh, she left the hospital that day, leaving her child behind and uh, ended up being uh, uh, on, on a telephone call with no legal support, uh, nobody to support her, uh, and having to have a hearing that led to the child, I think some sort of temporary order uh, being made uh, in, a, in something, you know, two days after having a cesarean section. This can't be a humane or right way of us doing these things.
0: That's that's shocking, Andy. And in terms of the mother's mental health, that must have taken a huge toll on her.
1: It certainly did. It certainly did. It was uh, uh, a very serious uh, impact on her, and uh, uh, she's still not. Uh, she's still struggling to come to overcome that.
0: And is she getting any kind of support to, to deal with the aftermath of all of that?
1: I've tried to put her in touch with. Uh, um, other parents who've uh, lost their children who can help and talk her through that. Beyond that, uh, I don't know. It's, it, it, this is just somebody I came across through a friend of a friend.
0: We've seen an unprecedented spike in the number of children being removed from parents over the last 10 years. What are your feelings about these removals in terms of whether or not they are just or necessary?
1: I think there's a, there are some children who need to come into care, we we can't debate that. What we've seen uh, in recent years is that when children come into care, little work is done to rehabilitate uh, parents or to get them back to parents. So what the pattern consists of is children staying longer and longer periods in care. Uh, I've done research on this, I've just done a piece on uh, children who enter care at birth uh, which is yet to be published and what this shows is that uh, in some local authorities as many as uh, 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 over one percent of all children are removed at birth and that uh, what you see is that the highest rates of these removals occur in, in, in local authorities which have the poorest outcomes in Ofsted uh, um, Evaluations. So, uh, it, this research seems to point to the idea that uh, uh, the, the quality of social work uh, in an agency can have a big uh, impact on how many children are removed rather than the needs of parents or children.
0: One of the um, most concerning things that I've read today um, relates to an email I received from a mother who said that she had had her children placed in care because she was unwell at the time, had since got better, but was finding it impossible to get her children returned to her care. This is potentially a practice that, that you may have seen yourself. Do you see things like this yourself from time to time?
1: It's sadly, uh, those sorts of stories are not uncommon in, in the people that I, I talk to. Uh, obviously, people who uh, have those sorts of uh, feelings are likely to come along and uh, uh, look for help. So it may be that that's why we see so many of them. But uh, they're certainly there in large numbers.
0: And why do you think local authorities are reluctant to return children?
1: I don't know. I think I think we've actually moved into a culture of rescue in many local authorities and uh, rather than parents being seen as part of the potential answer where we could help them to uh, overcome difficulties, they're seen as adversaries and uh, uh, we end up with uh, trying to take them away from their, ch- from their children, take their children away from them even. <laughs>
0: Well, that takes us on to um, the next concern that PFAN have listed on their website uh, where you say we are concerned at the way our society is increasingly moving away from providing help to parents and their children and instead increasing assessments, investigations and accusations of abuse. Why do you think that shift has taken place?
1: Well, I think, I think as I've just said, it's, a, it's about a rescue culture that we have and about fear that social workers have of missing something. Uh, Though we have no evidence that this child protection system actually protects children, um, what research there is looking at this at a systemic level uh, seems to show that there's very little change in the numbers of children being harmed. There's certainly no reductions in child deaths in the last 10 years, uh, if we we look at the statistics on it, and uh, in research I've done in, for example, in Australia, where where we've actually looked at uh, social workers' assessments of the harms that were done to children over a 20-year period, there was absolutely no change in the numbers of children being harmed over that whole period. And yet uh, uh, the numbers of investigations, the numbers of uh, children in care, all fluctuated and in recent years have all gone up.
0: And and looking at it from the other end of the spectrum, once children have gone through the care system and re-emerge on the other side as adults, there's some recent research that's come out which has had uh, a go at looking at how those outcomes um, have manifested. In other words, whether or not those outcomes for children who've been removed from parents uh, are better or worse going through the care system. And alarmingly, what this research shows unequivocally is that there is no evidence at all to suggest that those outcomes are actually better for those children surely that means there's something wrong with the way we are dealing with our child protection processes
1: well i, th- I think so i think if you if you have a rescue mentality if you see your job as uh, uh, as going in and taking uh, taking children away from harmful parents uh, you 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 tend to look for evidence and you tend to look for uh, um at what what to do to rescue those children. What you don't do is look at what help families need and how uh, how any strengths that the families have could be uh, enhanced and how we might actually support those parents to be better parents. And that leads to more children in care. The outcomes at the end of care, as you say, are really not good. Uh, and. I'm not sure which research uh, you were looking at, one I've seen recently shows that in Wales a third of all the the, uh, children who were adopted in a year in Wales had a parent who was in care at 16. It can't be that we're preparing uh, children who've gone through the care system for parenthood. uh, If that proportion of all the adoptions are due to to children uh, who are whose parents have
0: been in care. I've I've published that the research that we were just talking about that that gave a a long-term look at outcomes for children in care on on my website. So I'll add that to the the bottom of the podcast. And I'd be very grateful if you could um, share the the Welsh study that you have as well, and I can share that with the the listeners and the readers too. Um, Sure. Thank you. Um, You also raise other concerns which stem from confusion within the child protection sector. And what you say specifically in the statement is we are concerned at the confusion between neglect and inequality and poverty, which leads to growing numbers of children being put under surveillance, removed into care and adoption. Where does that confusion come from?
1: I I think it comes from uh, our attempts is this rescue mentality it leads us into thinking that uh, everything is is uh, is due to the actions of parents and we don't look at these broader societal uh, issues which have impact and which cause many of the problems that we're, we're dealing with so for example uh, the the whole business of uh, of, of poverty as a uh, as something which increases mental health problems, that uh, uh, makes it more likely that uh, families will uh, be violent to each other. It, we don't we don't take that into account, and so what we end up doing is responding as if everything is due to parents, uh, uh, rather than looking at the factors which actually uh, put put parents in a. A really difficult position to take on that role.
0: And often glimmers of light which indicate to the contrary are missed. So for example, families will often tell me that they approach their local authority and their social services in the first instance actively looking for help and support which is a clear indication that they're very aware that they need that support that they clearly want to parent and yet time and again that appears to be used against them rather than seen in the positive light in which it probably should be which is that these individuals these mums these dads know that they're something they need help with and they're actively looking for that support.
1: Okay. Couldn't agree more. It's something I also see uh, quite a lot that we, uh, we confuse calls for help with, uh, uh, with calls to, to uh, we overlay that with this uh, child protection ideology, which leads us to, again, go looking for evidence.
0: Another concern that you cite um, on the PFAN website in your statement uh, is a misplaced belief that society can protect children from future harm caused by emotional abuse by putting children and their parents under surveillance or removing them into care and adoption instead of creating environments that support parents, particularly mothers, and reduce their difficulties. So this idea of thresholds and uh, future harm, uh, it's clearly a well-meaning threshold and I'm personally a fan of the Children Act, even though it's not perfect, but I remain very concerned by the open-ended nature of the risk of future harm threshold, which we use to remove children from parents. Do you have any concerns about that threshold as a test?
1: Well, I, I have concerns about it, and I've also done a little bit of research in this area, which uh, uh, was reported on in The Guardian a few, a couple of years ago. Basically, what I found was that uh, if you look at where uh, the numbers of of uh, investigations of uh, emotional abuse have changed what you see is that uh, in lo- certain local authorities have had sudden and dramatic increases in the number of cases that they've classified in that way now i can't believe that there's a big difference that suddenly happens uh, in- within a year that you get 40 or 50% in some cases a doubling of uh, cases. And what that seems to point to, to me, is that uh, we have a system which is uh, in which the threshold can just be changed overnight by changes in practice and changes in the way social workers see things.
0: Do you think there's a better way in terms of assessing risk?
1: Yes, I I do. I mean, I think think part of the issue is looking for risk uh, and uh, looking for... uh, Yes, basically what we need to do is to start by looking for what help families need. If we start looking for risk, you'll see it. Risk is everywhere. You know, I, I could uh, uh, walk out of this office now and, and fall over. I'm at risk. Uh, if you start looking for what are the strengths and uh, uh, what are the positives in a, in a family, in a, lo- in a local community and work from that basis, you have the chance of actually starting to enhance those strengths and and, uh, uh, finding what people are good at, rather than constantly looking for what they're failing at. Um, The other thing is that uh, what we tend to do is individualise everything. So we need to think about, rather than how do we respond to a particular incident, is how do we actually strengthen communities. There's quite a lot of evidence that strengthening communities will actually reduce risk to children. Um, and what we're becoming increasingly involved in is this sort of uh, very narrow view, which leads us to uh, constantly look for blame for pa- from parents.
0: And that's perhaps what you're touching on in uh, the next concern in your statement, which is the concern of the exaggeration of risk that is undermining childhoods and creating an atmosphere of fear. How do you think that risk is exaggerated in practice today?
1: It's it's exaggerated in a number of ways. It's exaggerated because we have some very poor interpretations of research. One of the pieces I've done is looking at the advice and guidance around uh, um, bruising in pre-mobile babies. Mm -hmm. And basically, when you look at the research base for that, there is no research evidence for what happens in policies in many parts of the country which says that any pre-mobile baby with a bruise uh, is likely to have been abused and therefore should be subject of uh, 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 at the very least a paediatrician reviewing them and in five local authorities that uh, they should immediately be subject of a child protection investigation. What the research shows that this is based on is that Something like 27% of all pre-mobile babies will have a bruise if observed over an eight once a week over an eight-week period. Now, that's how we exaggerate risk. So the risk that those abuse that those bruises are abusive is never actually estimated. Mm. We don't look at how many children are harmed in that way and compare it to the numbers that are, where that is just uh, something that's that's happening through accident. What we do is we turn it the wrong way around and we uh, assume that uh, all of this is risk and all of this uh, uh, shows that these children are are likely to be harmed.
0: You also explain that it undermines childhood, that that exaggeration of risk undermines every child's childhood. Can you explain what that means in in practical terms for the child?
1: I think in practical terms we see that uh, parents uh, are... Are, are concerned about uh, uh, allowing their children to go uh, go out in parks uh, uh, to be unsupervised maybe in the ways that I was as a child uh, we're concerned about uh, uh, allowing other adults to be involved with children in a way that uh, we weren't in, the, in years gone by and we've got no evidence that this actually reduces the number of children who are harmed it's uh, it, 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 we keep focusing on the risks and it makes people wary and scared and it makes children's lives I think less uh, fulfilling uh, children need to be to have the ability to uh, do things for themselves they need to learn they need to be able to take some risks and we need to support them in doing that uh, and the child protection uh, ideology I think has has become so uh, internalised in everybody, that we're, we, we all, you know, don't even allow our children to walk to school, maybe.
0: The very last point that you make uh, on the PFAN statement is that you want to end child protection as we know it, and for there to be a fundamental change from child protection and rescue to child rights that strengthens family and community. That's a very big challenge. Uh, how do you want to achieve that?
1: <laughs> it's a huge challenge, and uh, uh, I can only hope that we can achieve it. Uh, one of the very positive uh, things that I've seen is work that was done in New York uh, a few uh, a few years ago by a friend of mine, David Tobis. There he was able to help parents to challenge the system, and parents themselves uh, did things like uh, they... Um, They campaigned, uh, they uh, uh, stood outside with banners, and through to uh, now a situation where parents have been employed by the uh, uh, local authorities out there as as advocates for parents within the system. In New York uh, last year, uh, every single parent who went to a child protection case conference had a... A parent advocate allocated to them who would help them to understand the system, to work with the system, and to uh, um, and to and to uh, put their own position more strongly. Uh, What that's led to is that uh, New York saw a reduction from fifty thousand children in care to around nine thousand it saw better legal representation starting to be uh, made available to, uh, to parents and children and it saw a, a, a huge change in the culture of the organization uh, there's evidence that when you start to have parents working side by side with professionals that affects the way the whole of the culture works so, the, so that might be one way of doing this to try to promote parent advocacy and so on. Other ways are obviously to promote children's rights and to get children's voices there because there are many uh, unheard and devalued uh, voices that need to be made uh, uh, part of the way that we think about the future of child protection. Uh, I was lucky enough to be involved in in the 80s in uh, reforming juvenile justice and uh, what started with a small group of us as practitioners campaigning led to very huge changes in in, in the juvenile justice system. We saw the end of care orders for offending and a move from about 14,000 children in care to 700 in just a, uh, a few years. And what that gives me is the hope that if enough of us get together and if enough of us start to make sure that we start to challenge these issues, uh, to look for new solutions, uh, and to build together a movement, we can actually make a difference.